podcast, No Stigma Nevada, focuses on stories by Nevadans whose lives and work are affected by mental health. I am the host, Kim Palchikoff, an award-winning journalist from California who now calls Nevada home. I live with bipolar disorder and have written extensively about my own life with this condition. As part of this project, which is funded by the Nevada Psychiatric Association, I introduce our audience to Nevada's psychiatrists and other doctors whose careers have addressed the complex issues of behavioral health. Matters of the mind are not always easily understood or defined. Issues such as gender and culture can greatly influence how mental health is experienced. And here, out west, in the Silver State in Nevada, things can get a little bit tricky. Our state is known for having the worst mental health in the nation, in part because we don't have a lot of doctors to treat it, and the stigma of mental illness can get in the way of patients. This is why the No Stigma Nevada podcast is so important. It is here we can discuss, listen, and learn. 51-year-old Dr. John Westhoff is a Nevada and retired military emergency room doctor like none other. Now an Army colonel, Dr. Westhoff's military medical career has spanned more than 20 years, including multiple assignments in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. In addition to his long career in emergency medicine, he also trained in public health, preventative medicine, and wilderness medicine, a training that comes in handy here in the snow-packed Sierra Nevada mountains. Since 2021, Dr. Westhoff has been based in Reno, Nevada, where he is the interim chair of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Nevada, Reno. He also works part-time as an emergency room doctor at the Carson Tahoe Regional Medical Center and Banner Hill Churchill Community Hospital in Fallon. But his passion for mental health has been a constant throughout his career, no matter which emergency room he has worked in, be it at the devastating Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005 or during the middle of the Iraqi war in Baghdad in 2006. He joined me in the studio to talk about his multifaceted and multinational career as an emergency room doctor over the decades, dealing daily with issues of life and death and the connection he sees between mind and body. I grew up, you know, literally and professionally in the military. My, uh, both my parents are actually retired Army, uh, so I, I lived abroad, went to Munich American High School as a dependent. And so I think in 1995, when it was time to pick medical schools, uh, it was natural for me to gravitate towards the Uniformed Services University, the, which is the military medical school. And uh, you know, at that time, we were in a period of relative peace. I graduated, and then 9-11 happened, and the next thing I knew, I, 25 years had passed, and uh, <laughs> here I am. I retired um, in 2020, um, and so I, I started out clinically as an emergency physician, and then about halfway through my military career, I did a second residency in public health and preventive medicine, and my career's kind of been s split between those two, uh, emergency medicine and public health, and I still do both. I, I see patients uh, clinically in the emergency department, and and then I work at the university in a variety of capacities, but mostly what you'd call public health or preventive medicine. It was really an interesting time to be in the military because you saw this total transformation, you know, from the peacetime military of the post-Gulf War, you know, mid-90s, and then this amazing transformation that happened following 
following 9-11, where we mobilized massive numbers of troops. I think the first time in I, w- I was in Iraq, we had 170,000 troops in Iraq. And the changes that came and, and the associated mental health issues and other um, you know, combat-related uh, issues, it really changed everybody's life, as you can imagine, in a very profound way that was on active duty at that time. And I kind of was there from the beginning to the end. You know, I was on active duty a practicing physician at 9-11, and then by the time I retired in 2020, the, basically the, the show was over, as we, we say uh, in the Army. Um, I practiced all over the world. Uh, I, I lived in Tokyo. I lived in Germany. I practiced in both of those places, interacted with the host nation uh, population, both clinically and from a public health perspective, you know, and then the other odd, you know, business trip to Africa for a project or whatnot. So it, it's given me a global perspective. I've lived abroad probably about 13 years total of my life and then practiced all over the United States, um, you know, East Coast to West Coast. Uh, in that time, you know, I've been married 30 years, raised five kids, and somehow we came out of it okay. When I was in Iraq the first time, it was 2006, and that was kind of straddled what they called the surge. You know, we were getting kind of mired down in this insurgency, and so we were really going to up our involvement. And as I remember the briefing, you know, I was in Baghdad when the, our leadership of our hospital came in and told us about uh, the surge. And the first time I was in Iraq, it was there as part of a, a hospital that was actually explicitly devoted to taking care of detainees. So our mission was to take care of Iraqis and foreign fighters, people who had, were trying to kill us and that we had captured, detained, and, and of course, much of the time injured and so doing. So that was my mission for the first year I was there. When I went back, it was very different. This, it was uh, um, much later. The, the war proper was over, but we were still there. Uh, supporting special forces operations, but this time now we're not an occupying force, but the Iraqi government's in charge and we're their guests and we're helping them. All the direct contact, the the, the fighting, you know, is done by, at that point, by Iraqi uh, forces and we're we're in a supporting role. So very different. And, and there I'm taking care of a, a lot more coalition uh, soldiers who somehow, or, or Marines and uh, airmen and sailors as well that somehow managed to come in harm's way. But even the first time when I was taking care of primarily detainees in the fog of war, you're always going to be taking care of, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, troops and coalition forces that are hit nearby you. You know, they, you, maybe they're not supposed to come to you, but you're the closest uh, port in the storm. And so you, 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 you do a fair amount of that kind of care. And then when I was in Germany, um, I, at that point, I was primarily doing public health work, doing a lot of work with the Germans, but also working shifts in the emergency department, and that often involved evacuation of, of uh, you know, troops from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. All these bodies that are injured are t- attached to brains, and uh, everybody's kind of dealing with it differently. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, there there's the pure psychiatric presentations that I've seen, which are can be you know, fascinating from a medical point of view or, or very routine, you know, mood disorders, anxiety, that sort of thing. But often uh, it's the mental health issues that I'm dealing with are just are complicating the care of other conditions, right? Or, or maybe they're even, they're, uh, another condition is masquerading as a mental, or, or a, uh, I'm sorry, a mental health issue is masquerading as a, a physical symptom like chest pain, um, 
that sort of thing. So I, I, I think people have estimated that, you know, amongst the emergency department patients, somewhere between 20 and 30% of uh, our encounters have some significant mental health component. So it's, it's not a trivial thing. So a lot of times medical students have a lot of misconceptions about what service in the military is going to be like. And I, I, usually when I give them my perspective, it's very positive. They're more inclined to go in than not. Um, there's, there are challenges associated with any sort of road you take, I think. You have this, this perceived sort of loss of autonomy, you know, because you're not completely in control. I think that that's a lot more imagined than real. And I, th I think that people that are not in the military sort of recognize that there are always trade-offs and you're not always in control anyway. I think that the, the key is sort of finding the intersection of your interests and the military's interests. And if you can do that, you know, you can have a great career in the military. And I think even if you just do your training and get out, you don't you have to retire like I do. I think it's uh, worthwhile in a lot of ways. I don't consider myself an expert in mental health, but I do consider myself uh, very savvy. And in terms of, you know, emergency medicine's perspective on this, I think I, I care about the issue and know as much about it or more that, than most emergency physicians. I also have that kind of public health perspective. So suicide's a kind of a fascinating um, phenomenon from an epidemiologic point of view. I'm an, I'm an MPH in epidemiology, and that's kind of where my work in public health is focused. Um, it, it's not straightforward what uh, at a at a population level what the intervention, what the appropriate intervention is. Um, we don't know that, and so we sort of throw the kitchen sink at it. And we've certainly done that with veterans. And um, you know, when I was on active duty, I was subjected to an amazing amount of um, training designed to increase my mental and emotional resilience, um, to increase my awareness about. Uh, suicidality as a problem, to, you know, that, to let me know the warning signs and, and so forth. Everyone had to do this, you know, whether you're a private or a general doctor or infantryman, you, you're going through this training. Um, what's not clear to us is, is it making a difference? Um, and it's, it's kind of this phenomenon of, you know, don't just stand there, do something. And so you, you do something, but there is, it's occurred to me as a, you know, as a epidemiologist that there, there, it's possible we're, out of out of be, being well-meaning, we're not only not helping sometimes, but we might actually be making the problem worse. And this isn't just a phenomenon that's seen in the military, but you see it outside the military as well. Because that in the, in the effort to you know and rightfully destigmatize a lot of mental health issues, there you can cross the line into romanticizing. Um, I think this this effect has been called the Werther effect. Um, it's been named after a, a character in a 18th century novel by Goethe, and so where there's this character in the book, and he uh, ultimately kills himself. And the, the book was very popular, and uh, young men started dressing like the protagonist of the book, and there was an increase in suicides. And this is pretty well documented in modern times, where you know a report about a a, a, a popular or famous figure killing himself can be associated with uh, cluster suicides, and, you know, um, an increase in the rate of suicides. And, and um, there's an opposite effect that's, uh, I think it's, it sounds like an Italian restaurant, uh, Papageno. <laughs> and it's, uh, the Papageno effect is the, you know, when, when media is influential in decreasing the rate of suicide, and, it, and it's named after a character from, I think, an opera by Mozart who was, had a suicidal crisis and then sort of, 
I was able to show some adaptive behaviors and sort of got past it. Um, and, and I think that that is, that's the, the tension there. You know, there's a tension on the one hand, you don't want to be silent about it. You want people to know that this suffering's out there and, and it's happening. On the other hand, you don't want to romanticize it, right? You want to highlight, uh, you want more Papageno effect. You want to highlight adaptive behaviors, right? Like people who, who, who are, are, you know, engaging, taking seriously their anxiety, taking seriously their depression, they have an internalized stigma. They, they're getting themselves the help that they need, and then they're successful in it. But the bias, you know, the, the bias is, is just from reality, right? Hey, breaking news, Kurt Cobain shot himself with a shotgun. You know, how many months was that in the news? There's no breaking news. Hey, just want to let you know this really famous guy that you didn't know was having a problem has just been an example of really positive and, and adaptive approaches to his mental health challenges, right? That's not going to be on the news. You're not even going to know that that guy was struggling, right? So highlighting those adaptive behaviors instead of highlighting the maladaptive behaviors, and in, it, and in most cases, suicide represents the most maladaptive behavior possible, right? So we're highlighting um, the, the worst cases and then sort of surprise that maybe we've crossed the line into romanticization. And I just wonder, like I say, that in some cases, in, in trying to, in, in being well-meaning, we aren't sort of undoing, you know, progress that we've made. When I was uh, doing uh, my second residency and I was on an occupational medicine rotation at the VA in uh, Tacoma, and I was in that clinic where we sort of intake veterans who have separated from DOD and are now at the VA. So, and one thing I should point out too, as epidemiologists, a lot of our veterans' data comes from utilizers of the VA, which is not the same as, it's not the, even the same as veterans, right? So somebody like me who uh, goes to retirement in the military is a very different sort of, po that's a biased population versus somebody who does 18 months and is separated for spraining their ankle, you know, in advanced training or something like that, um, or, or for four years or what, whatever. And a lot of veterans will separate from the military and have nothing to do ever again you know, with the VA or with DOD and they go their own way and they, they work for Pfizer or Google or, you know, the state of Nevada and they have insurance and they get their healthcare at Renown or Northern Nevada and they don't use the VA. So there is a little bit of a oversampling that ha happens with, when you talk about just VA patients. They, VA patients don't equal all veterans. So there is that just sort of as an epidemiologist, I would not be I couldn't respect myself if I didn't point out that technical uh, term. But uh, what I was going to say was I, I was on dissertation at the VA, and, and um, I had two patients back-to-back -back that just were an amazingly stark uh, uh, contrast. So the uh, first patient that I, uh, I remember seeing was uh, a retiring E9, which is a sergeant major. And he was a rel relatively young sergeant major because he'd, and he'd, he'd been very successful in his career with special forces. And this was in – this would have been like 2010 – where you know this guy had probably done more violence with his bare hands than you know you and I would ever, the average person will ever see, maybe uh, and hope to see, and he was thriving. He uh, was doing well in his marriage. He had started a business before he left active duty, and it was doing great. And he had no issues at all. He was just kind of there to sign up and. You know, so when he broke his leg or something, he'd come to the VA. Uh, he, he wasn't having any issues at all that I could tell. And then the very next patient I saw was a young man who had spent, um, you know, a couple of years in the Navy, 
had deployed to Kuwait, never to Iraq, never to Afghanistan, never had come in harm's way, never had done you know anything particularly uh, violent in the line of duty or seen anything. But it was but his time in, in Kuwait and the constant threat of rocket attacks from Iraq that never happened, but the threat of it was just too much for him. Sort of and it kind of broke him, and so he had PTSD, relationship issues, uh, problems holding a job, and I thought, wow, what. You know what a difference, right, between these two individuals and how they are dealing uh, with the trauma associated with military life. Uh, we would like in in, the, in DoD that you would like to be able to at the recruiting station be able to tell <laughs> that you know the person who's going to go on to be that sergeant major and then the person who's going to struggle with just the threat of rocket attacks in Kuwait. You right now we don't have a good way of of telling the difference and. Um, it, it's, it's not to say that that E9 didn't, I'm sure, have his struggles, but he had demonstrated uh, if he had a pattern of adaptive behaviors, whereas, uh, you know, with the, the other uh, young man, not so much. And, you know, cause and effect are really hard to tease out, as you know. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, I, I, so that's a long way of saying we don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, I, it is, it, it, we do have higher rates of, of suicides uh, among veterans, um, but it's not as bad sometimes as people purport, it's not orders of magnitude. I think it's on the order of like the public, the public's like 25 out of 100,000 veterans or like 30 out of 100,000. This is something I think m mental health providers grossly underestimate our experience and exposure to these issues. So it's an every shift phenomenon. Every single day I work in the emergency room, I, I, I uh, deal with somebody who is suicidal, someone who has a substance abuse issue, somebody who is somaticizing some deep, deep psychic pain, you know, in the form of uh, dyspnea, shortness of breath, or panic attacks. Uh, um, it, it's, it's an everyday thing. So, um, and we all sort of develop our own different approaches to it. I think uh, too many emergency physicians kind of turn off um, because I think it's just honestly, it's an opportunity cost thing. It's a time thing. You know, while every every minute spent talking to one patient in a busy emergency room is robbed from another, right? So while I'm talking to you and once I realize your life's not in danger today, I, you know, the person next door I haven't seen in room five may be having a heart attack and losing heart muscle every minute counts, right? And I haven't diagnosed that yet. So I, it, it might actually be a bad thing that I continue to talk with you and explore your issues. There's a real opportunity cost to my time in the emergency room that doesn't exist in a lot of other specialties, right? Where there's an appointment and a, this is your time, let's talk. We've got 30 minutes, an hour, 15 minutes, whatever. I, I have to triage my time uh, minute to minute in the emergency room. So uh, th that pressure, that time pressure really makes a lot of emergency physicians sort of dread uh, psychiatric um, presentations because they are so time intensive, right? If you're gonna do it right, they just take a lot of time and that's the one thing we don't have. We, I certainly have interest, and I, I do think I probably have more interest than the average emergency physician. I remember in training in my emergency medicine uh, residency, I was watching, uh, I might have been a student on a rotation, a fourth year rotation, and I'm watching somebody set a bone of a patient who broke in their arm, and I could not pay any attention because I was so fascinated by this psychiatric interview that was going on on the other side of the curtain. It was like the bone, I got it. It's bent, it's broken, you're going to straighten it. Got it. I get it. Okay, like boring, right? But... Boy, what's, that's fascinating. What's going on over there? Is that patient having a psychotic break? You know, what's going on? It was just uh, much more interesting to, uh, to me. So I, I, I find it genuinely interesting. And I am 
frustrated, like almost on a daily basis, uh, how difficult it is to get the patients I see with psychiatric problems uh, the care that they need. You know, sometimes they are part of that problem. You know, their their maladaptive behaviors have made it hard to help them. But we're also in a state that has you know we're underserved for all specialties, but especially mental health. In Nevada, we can hold you for 72 hours if we feel like you're a danger to yourself or others, and it's. It frequently takes that entire time, if not more, to get you placed. It's uh, there's sort of a lot of factors that go into how easy it is to place you, um, which I don't need to get into. But um, it's not, it is not uncommon, especially with child psych, to see somebody in an emergency room for six or seven days, waiting for placement. And I just think that's a that is disastrous um, in terms of uh, kind of a therapeutic alliance with the system, right? Like it's a it's embarrassing. You know, we were having empty slots. We used to be very high demand, and there were no empty slots. There were lots of people who wanted to do emergency medicine and couldn't do it, and now we're having empty slots, like a lot of, you know, which has been the norm for primary care specialties for since, you know, since my entire career. Some people think this is a function of we've opened up too many residencies and we've outstripped uh, demand. Other people say, well, this is because our life, you know, sucks (laughs) to be flippant, right? Like we have one of the highest burnout rates in medicine. volumes in emergency departments continue to outstrip population growth. Like we have kind of become the fall guy or the ombudsman for, you know, medicine. Anywhere you look in the country, you see this unsustainable trend of increasing visits to the emergency department. And again, that's kind of a another Rorschach test. Why that is, is complicated. I have my own uh, thoughts. That's another podcast. Um, but it is, uh, it's hard to be an emergency physician. There's no doubt about it. I reserve judgment on exactly why. I'm very honest when I talk to students about it. I think the skill set's fantastic. It's kind of amazing. I think you're, you've got a front row seat sort of on the human condition. You're at the final common pathway of all systems failures in, in, the, in the state of Nevada when you're in an emergency room in Nevada. You, you, if you want to sort of figure out what's wrong with your healthcare system, I'd invite any healthcare executive just go spend a couple of days in your emergency department and every single patient is a case study in some systems failure, whether it's a failure of prevention, you know, it's a failure of health literacy, uh, follow-up of instructions of primary care access. Uh, you know, there, it, it's, uh, and, and that's kind of how I, 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 I draw my, the inspiration for my public health work from my clinical work, because, you know, as I, I, I work in public health at this, 50,000 and higher foot view of things, and then I'm down on the ground, uh, and I, you just can't help but start to see how what how your patient uh, being in the emergency room with you right now is, uh, you know, in some ways represents, some of these things are unavoidable, but I would say about half the time represents a significant and avoidable systems failure. And at the beginning of the pandemic too, I mean, number one, we're not vaccinated, but also too, in these kinds of pandemics, the first part tends to be the worst in terms of the, the virus's virulence and the, the severity of the disease that it, it, it causes. And, um, you know, you're, I remember images of, like, the providers just with, like, they had ulcers on their faces from their protective gear, and we couldn't get proper protective gear. And I somehow made it – I did not get COVID until after I was vaccinated. I don't know how because I, like, full-on – you know, I innovated and coded I, this. I remember having a woman who was in her mid-40s who died of COVID in my emergency room. I, I worked on her for about two hours and innovated her, and I did it all without the proper, uh, you know, I, I, w- I had a mask on, but not the kind you would normally wear for an aerosolizing event like innovating a patient. 
and yeah, no, somehow I, I managed to not get COVID. I, I think it's just because I was very faithful about wearing protection with all patients, not just ones with respiratory problems and uh, so forth. But there, I'm sure there's no doubt some luck involved. But yeah, and I was very uh, happy to not get COVID <laughs> in, to, in the first, I think I got, I went two years before I got it. I was in the military actually when COVID started and there was, that was actually kind of a, there was some, I wouldn't say they tried to guilt trip me, but my, you know, my hospital commander did play the, uh, Hey, John, your, your country needs you, you know, how can you leave at this time of a pandemic? And I said, boss, you know, who else needs me? Reno, you know, COVID's there too. And uh, I'll contribute wherever I'm at. So, um, but it was hard. We absolutely do not have the bandwidth uh, of mental health providers to be able to manage uh, mental health. And, and you have the whole category of patient who lack insight into their problems and will refuse to ever see a, a mental health provider. And so there's just, it has to be integrated uh, with primary care. Um, there are a lot of things in internal medicine that psychiatrists need to know. And then vice versa, there are plenty of things that psychiatrists can teach us. You know, there, there's so many people on, you know, psychotropic medications and um, like I say, access to mental health care is so difficult it's, um, that we've just we've got to do better. So uh, it's absolutely a priority for me. I don't I don't think we get enough. I mean, to be fair, it, it's a you know it's drinking from a fire hose, and so the amount of material that's got to be mastered in your three years of internal medicine residency is you know incredibly deep and wide, um, and and mental health just one part of it. So it's always you're always competing for white space in that curriculum. Um, but yeah, I. I I'm doing my part to try to in increase the, the amount of exposure that our residents get to mental health training. In terms of interesting psychiatric cases, I've had a, a number uh, that just fascinate me. Um, like I say, I really do enjoy taking care of uh, patients that are struggling with mental health, um, even psychosis and uh, whatnot. But I, I remember seeing a patient, I was in, this is in my preventive medicine uh, training days. and. Somebody had been kind of inappropriately referred to us. I think they misunderstood sort of what our clinic was about. But they, but as an emergency physician, I recognized immediately the patient had um, what we call delusions of parasitosis. There's other names for this, but they have this fixed false belief that they are just infested with a parasite that can't, doesn't show up on any of the tests and nobody can find it, but they really have this parasite and nobody will believe them. And what's remarkable about these patients is that there's nothing else wrong with them. Like they... They could be a CEO, you know, they, they're not, these are not people who can't hold the job or, or have relationship issues. Like they're doing great. They just have this single obsession about a parasite that they got in some, uh, you know, and they, they can't shake it and they have very little insight about it. And so you, and they, and they classically, and I, the classic story is that they come in and they pull like some lint out of their belly button and they'll bring it in into a little, a little vial to you and they'll say, oh, here it is, here's the worms. And you look at it, and it looks like belly button lint to you. And you send it to the lab, and they're like, "It's vegetable material," <laughs> and and it does. But that don't talk them out of it. Like, oh, you know, you guys, you know, you missed it, or you know, your, your tests are wrong. It was interesting because my patient did that, and I looked it up, and it's like they will bring in their belly button lint and tell you it's a parasite. It's like classic, right? So um, I, knowing kind of how how specialists work in the emergency department, a big part of what we do is talk to all the specialists all the time. I think we're sort of the hub of the wheel, right? So we know their culture and so forth. And I know this that the patient needs a psychiatric care, but I also know that a psychiatrist is not gonna touch this unless they're absolutely certain that parasitosis has been ruled out, right? Because they don't wanna be 
treating you for uh, your fixed false belief or your anxiety about your health when you actually have got you know a parasite that you picked up on deployment or something. So I called the dermatologist because infestation in his mind was dermatologic in nature. Was you know he had he would see the worms coming out of his skin and whatnot. It's kind of classic. And I called the dermatologist a dermatologist stuff and 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 my pitch with him was, hey listen. I know that you don't want to see a psychiatric condition, but I kind of need you to clear this guy so that a psychiatrist will take them, you know, and run with it. And he, to this day, this is the strongest consultant response I have ever, like, it was so impressive to me that he wasn't just a skin technician like so many dermatologists are, you know, I'll, I'll do respect to dermatologists, but many of many of you act like skin technicians, uh, just like orthopedic surgeons can forget that they're doctors and act like bone technicians, right? Like there's a whole patient there, right? That, and you need to talk to them. No offense to those two specialties. Everyone's kind of can do that. Even in primary care emergency medicine, we can fall into that trap. But he said to me, not only will I see the patient, but I will manage his delusions of parasitosis up to and including the prescription of antipsychotic medications, which is the, the, the pharmacologic treatment at the time for that. Um, because he said, they will trust me and they believe I'm a real doctor. Pati these patients will not see a psychiatrist. They don't, be they don't believe they have a psychiatric problem. They have, very, they have no insight uh, uh, about you know, their problem as a psychiatric problem. So we end up uh, managing. Now, I, I have not yet in my career found another dermatologist who felt that way, but that's, the, that's what right looks like you know, when it comes to like owning you know, the whole patient and not just treating you know, the disease, you know, quote unquote, but treating the patient, that holistic approach, it's the only way you're gonna properly address mental health issues. You will never have enough psychiatrists and social workers and clinical psychologists to manage this because it's too embedded in and integrated with the rest of what we do. That was Dr. John Westhoff, an emergency room physician and interim chair of the University of Nevada, Reno, internal medicine department talking about life as a military physician and the connection he's seeing between body and mind in emergency rooms across the globe.